Revolutionary times and times of despair, times of defeat, um, and times of struggle. Vijay? Uh, it's great to be here. Nice to be with you, Anjali. Uh, Anjali has written a fantastic essay about Donald Trump and India. And basically, it's about capitalism, right. not really <laughs> about Donald Trump. I mean, Trump is just a symptom of capitalism. You know, he's not a real character. He is what the, right, you know, in Germany they call the bearers of the structure. Anyway, well, can I put it in a slightly different way, which is that, um, you know, writing like any act, any act of expression, is not a thing of itself. It's not an autonomous practice. Uh, in a sense, one has to make a set of choices as any kind of expressive person, artist, writer, whatever. And these choices are deeply political. I mean, in a time when the world is going to hell, when political movements are being you know, mischaracterized through disinformation, when it's really difficult for working class people to get their voices heard, I think the writer then is under an obligation to make a political choice. You know, I don't think the issue for me is art for art's sake, art for poetry. I think that distinction is erroneous. That distinction actually is used to silence the political voice. Because when you write politically or think politically, then you say, well, you're not aesthetic or whatever. And so the question that I think for me is, the real question is, it's a political choice that you have to make whether you're for the working poor or you're for the plutocracy. And after you've made that choice, I think everything else falls into place. You know, the subjects that you write about and the kind of language you use, you know. And I think that's something that Mark and I have talked a lot about, is that language follows, in my opinion, that, that first primary choice. I mean, you both did a series of conversations in um, Jacobin and the Boston Review about socialist writing. Um, how, how do you, think about socialist writing or radical writing, right? R the role of this, this kind of 
radical writer who is political, who isn't just writing, treating writing as an individual process, right? Because writing can be a very isolating, lonely process, and it's expensive, and you know, it, everything becomes monetized, your writing becomes a commodity, your readers become consumers. You know, how do you make this a collective process and actually you know, change the language? I mean, one of the things that, that I was really interested in was that about mm, 15 years ago or so, I had been doing a lot of uh, teaching creative writing, poetry in the schools, poetry in the prisons, and these programs had been like established and had been there for a really long time. But I, I, I felt like something was missing, you know, and I, I thought of the neighborhood that I grew up in and everyone like worked at the factories and my father was vice president of his union and eventually when he was much older went to community college but th there was no option for any of their voices to be out there and so while i was writing i felt a need to simultaneously create a space for other narrators to come into the process and that was when uh, i had the idea to start doing uh, poetry workshops not only in the schools and in the prisons but in with the trade unions and with the worker centers and that's how the worker writer school was formed and one of the first ones was a uh, there was a closing Ford plant uh, in St. Paul Minnesota where I was living and they uh, I approached them and said well what if I offered this creative writing class at the UAW hall, at the Ford plant, and they surprisingly said yes. So we had some Ford workers from the plant who came uh, every other week, wrote poems, and while that process was happening, I got this grant to go to South Africa from my book, and I sent this email out to uh, NUMSA, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa. You were just with them recently, yes, right? Yes. And they set up a whole two-day workshop where I brought the poems from the US Ford workers, took them to the South Africa, African plants in Port Elizabeth and Pretoria, and those workers then wrote kind of back in response to the Ford workers. And it was this completely kind of eye-opening experience for me and for the workers, because, you know, while capital and bosses and managers have endless opportunities to speak to each other, workers at a plant in Minnesota and workers at a plant in Port Elizabeth or Pretoria have never even seen e a picture of each other, let alone mm. had space for a conversation. And, and smashing that distinction, right, between an intellectual and a worker, mm -hmm. and insisting on the creative and political agency of workers um, is so so crucial here, and, and doesn't happen nearly often enough. I mean, as you know, you talked a little bit in, in that in, in one of those interviews about you know what is the role of like journalists or writers, nonfiction writers, who you know too often we see in contemporary journalism about you know, writing about poverty or exploitation or repression or war, where people are reduced to passive victims, right? <laughs> and not as agents of history, not as agents of politics. And, you know, how do you, you know, like workers I've interviewed in Bangladesh would talk about, you know, we're nothing but machines to them. And how do you insist, no, like we are writers too. We are creative beings. I mean, how, how has that process worked out when you are working with writers who, you know, don't have enough time. I mean, part of writing is also find having the time and the resources. And we're living in such a climate of increased precariousness, rollback on you know worker protections, especially for immigrant workers in this country and around the world. Um, what kind of what, what what do we do to make sure there's enough time and resources so that writers workers have the material conditions to write? I mean, in, in a sense, Mark and I do different things as well. Uh, I teach these socialist writing workshops in India. And, you know, they've been, for the last several years, oversubscribed. I mean, we have huge numbers of people come, young people, older people, and so on. And the cardinal thought that runs through the workshop, you see, let's take the New York Times, our enemy, and let's open a story. And in a story, say, on Bangladesh, there'll be lots of voices of workers. But essentially, the worker is a mannequin for the journalist. The worker is just standing in the window. Journalist is clothing them. What the journalist doesn't do is to see the worker as an intellectual with a political opinion and doesn't allow the perspective of the worker to shape the story. 
you know, and so part of what I'm very keen for socialist writers to recognize is you don't have to have the voices of workers filling the text. What you've got to be able to establish is the perspective of workers. And obviously, there will be different perspectives. So if I'm going to write a story, say I, I went and spent uh, some time with the Abashali group in Durban, South Africa, shack dwellers movement. I sat on the buses, you know, I had the thing. I talked to a lot of them. And then they developed for me their understanding of their movement. So when I sit down and I have the time to write the story, I have to elaborate their perspective. That's part of it. The other part of it, which I think is, you know, where I think our work begins to very much overlap, is that, you see, there is an idea that writing needs a lot of time, which is a 19th century European bourgeois idea, <laughs> kind of reflective writer. You know, you've got to get it right. You've got to have the inspiration come to you. And I think that this, this idea of the writer immediately, because it has such a strong class, you know, uh, uh, moat around it, it's got crocodiles and so on, that it itself means that those who cannot have the time will never be seen as writers. So we have to actually change the idea of what writing means. And interesting things happen. You know, I teach my classes about automatic writing. You're at a demonstration. You're on the way back. Write an article on your phone. Dead, just uh, talk into your phone about what you've experienced. And then you know, publish that wherever. We'll find a way. But there is a way to articulate your experience with your perspective in a way that we have to train readers to read. The problem may not be the writer. It may be the reader. You want the New Yorker type story. Sorry, pals. That is a bourgeois form of communication. <laughs> you see, learn to read what a writer writes, because they might come at you rough. And when they come at you rough, that's part of their perspective. In other words, their style, content and perspective are intertwined. You can't tell a ri worker writer or a socialist writer, write like this, because this is how because then you've lost the perspective. That automatic writing, so says the person with 26 books. <laughs> um, I, have, I have two super quick stories. One of them uh, from one of the early workshops with the Ford workers is that point that you made about, about the newspapers, right? So the, this Ford plant that made Model Ts that had been around for 90 years is closing. And the Twin Cities newspaper comes, and there's a picture on the cover of this worker, right? And he's got his sleeves cut off, he's got tattoos, earrings, a long ponytail, he looks like a Harley biker, and he's given one sentence, like this is gonna be terrible, right? And this guy's name is Denny Dickhausen. So when I start uh, the workshops at Ford, Denny comes to the workshops. And he says he's worked at the plant for like 30 years, basically every job in the Ford plant. And he's carried around a little pocket notebook in his shirt and jotted things down for 30 years. And he's got like two shoe boxes of these at home and never knew what to do with them. And when he saw this ad in the UAW's newsletter for this writing workshop, he's like, I'm gonna bring my notebooks, I'm gonna come and do that, right? And so that's one of the spaces for, for this story that he, he has all of these stories, but he's given, like you said, that one little clip, and that's all he's given in the newspaper. The second story I wanna tell, which I think is really important, is that when we started this collaboration with Penn seven years ago, uh, I was asked who I wanted to work with in the city, and I said, well, Domestic Workers United. They had passed this incredible Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. We scheduled a meeting, and Christine Lewis, who you'll hear and see in a few minutes, came to that very first meeting, and I'll never forget uh, sitting with her and her saying, you know, so many journalists have come and spoken to us, and they take our stories, and they go away, and we never hear from them again. Right? And she's like, you're not going to do that, are you? And I said, I wasn't going to do that. I said, you are going to have an opportunity to tell your own stories. And well, now I see Christine every month for seven years. <laughs> and she comes and writes. Um, but so I think that's so important is this creating of spaces for new narrators to tell the story from my side, and then from Vijay's side, what that story is and how we tell that story. That's so crucial, right? Getting people 
It's giving people the space to tell their own story. So it isn't always just, like you said, window dressing <laughs> for the journalist's broader story. Um, do we need a new vocabulary? We're talking about a new, you know, readers who are able to read, right? So we're not stuck in the same kind of style of what is considered good writing. What is the, the aesthetics and the poetics of what's supposed to make writing writing, right? What's supposed to make writing literature? So what, how do you sort of handle the question of vocabulary, of um, style, especially you know, when you talk about socialist writing? How do you write in a way that, you know, what do you see as the goal of it, and how is it not, you know, how do you move it beyond the sort of very common critique of what's sort of aimed at anything that has the word socialist before it, which is, oh, it's just propaganda. Mm. So, I mean, what's wrong with propaganda? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not clear, you know. <laughs> uh, we used to have departments of agitation and propaganda, agitprop. Uh, it was a perfectly respectable thing until suddenly the bourgeoisie decided that the stuff they don't like is propaganda and what they have is the truth. You know, uh, th this is border creation in a way of, you know, what's legitimate, what's illegitimate. So, hey, listen, uh, one of the things that, one of the reasons I really enjoyed having this, uh, these two interviews with Mark, what I really enjoyed was that you know, generally people of the left, and I'm squarely right there and proud and whatever, but generally people on the left don't give style any time of day. Like, the understanding is, you just gotta get the, it's, it's like spoken word poetry, but without any practice. Just come in there and just say, you know, Trump is it, you know. Now, the thing is, why I enjoy working with avowedly socialist journalists is, you know, we don't have to discuss perspective. They get it immediately. That's the first two minutes. You know, that's like a, a lecture. That's over. Now the real question is, how do you craft a story? How do you make sure that you're writing a story which, you know, people can read without getting a headache? So, you know, we develop principles of how to do this. You know, the idea, for instance, of detonator sentences and things like, you know, one s idea, one sentence. I mean, we, uh, over the course of a bunch of, some principles have emerged. And I find it refreshing because now I go to, say, a newsroom of a left-wing newspaper in India, and I've seen some of the principles on the wall. Why? Because they are thinking about it. Mm -hmm. They have produced their own principles. Because what they want more than anything is they, pe we need to understand that People are not reading newspapers because you know they are on something, doing something else, Instagram, whatever it is. If you're not making a newspaper interesting, people are not going to come to it. I mean, you can't just stand there and say, "Well, they're not coming." You know, that's like the kind of Booker Prize novels. I mean, you know, I've written such a big novel, and people are too stupid to read. Well, okay, that's a great attitude, but our issue is, how do we find the way to reach the reader? And how do we captivate the reader? So, you know, things that bourgeois journalism has thought, thought about for years, like, you know, the lead and, you know, sentence structure and whatever, that has to be brought in. So I'm finding this quite an interesting and exciting thing is to talk to people who have basically said style is a bourgeois thing and convince them it's actually not. If you read the Communist Manifesto, it is one of the most stylish books written in the 19th century. It's an extraordinarily beautiful text. How can you read that and say, well, you know, Marx and they were, you know. No, they were, they thought about, you know, the writing of the fantastic, Hoffman, you know, the goblins and specters and hobgoblins and God knows what all is in the manifesto. It's a very lyrical book and it captivates the reader. You gotta have that in mind. So that's a very important piece of it is to bring, not rules of writing, but considerations of style into what we do. And everybody will develop their own voice and style and so on, as it should be. We should democratize style. It shouldn't be like a centralized way, but the discussion must be there. And I don't think in our world that discussion is common. No, and I think too that, you know, from the literary world side, 
right, is that you, you see the work that becomes canonized as literature, but we rarely ask the question of who's making those decisions on that canon formation, right? Like why are these poets in and why are these poets not? And you probably have a very different perspective if you know you went to elite schools and you got your PhD and you're teaching at an elite university with elite students and that all your interaction is that, you'd have a certain sense of, well, these are the important works of literature. But if you, you know, were a student at a community college you went to a state university, maybe if you teach at a community college, you might have a totally different sense of what important poems are that as a reader and as a teacher of those works. So I think we don't, I mean, like the New York Times, I think that same thing exists in the literary world and we don't really, very few scholars have questioned why those canons are the way they are, why these poets are important and these poets are not. Can you share some of your strategies that you use to kind of dismantle the canon? Like when you're doing your workshops, like how do you encourage people and like learn from the people in your workshop about how to play with language in interesting and new ways? Yeah, well we just look at lots of models, right? And the models might be everything from Mahmoud Darwish, you know, who is an incredibly important poet around the world to we did, a, one of the poems hopefully we'll hear today, with the model for it was there's this new anthology of Chinese migrant worker poets that recently came out and we used one of the poems from there. So this way it was like a worker in China writing a poem that then we talk about in the worker writer school and respond to it that way. So we're, we're, we're coming at it from lots of different perspectives rather than here's the Norton, here's the Oxford anthology, here's who's in it, here's who we should be reading, here's who's won the book, big book prizes, right? Those writers, like the migrant Chinese worker poet, is never going to probably win that huge prize, but nonetheless, those works are phenomenal in that anthology. And in fact, there's this huge movement of Chinese migrant workers writing poetry now, you know, that wasn't around 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, it reminds me of like, the, the migrant workers who are working in garment factories who slip a note mm. into some of the clothes they're making in the hope that you know um, the ultimate consumer will find that note um, and, and that work of creativity, but also a sort of pointing to the exploitation that is um, part of this labor. What, what do you see, Vijay, as the role of the socialist writer? Uh. To make the revolution. I mean, what's, that's the ultimate aim is to end the exploitation of capitalism. Okay, that but said. Let me, let me be that more said, specific. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm curious about, you know, I just came from Egypt, um, where there was, you know, as, you know, there was a massive uprising seven years ago. It was a time of great hope, and um, I was there. Very good friends with a lot of people there and it's sort of sunk into the state of despair. Mm. And during the sort of heyday of the uprising, the main slogan was, despair is betrayal. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, since 2013, there's a, there's a new dictator, there's been 40,000 political prisoners, um, uh, massacres, hundreds of people. So there's this sense, there's, there's a real sort of political morbidity. There's not much movement. And there's groups of people trying to do things, right? But, and um, a friend who, who you know as well runs a newspaper, which is the only independent paper there called Nada Mas, and they're at risk of being shut down every day, but they're still insisting on running this newspaper, even though for months it wasn't even available inside Egypt. <laughs> it was an online paper um, in Arabic and English. Um, but you know, there's this insistence on, you know, despite the despair, despite the heaviness, despite the lack of any kind of political space and the risks of arrest every single day, um, of still putting some perspectives out there, trying to write, trying to push the limits in whatever way possible. But it's, you know, it's, um, it's inspiring to see the process, but the news they're covering isn't particularly inspiring. It's hard to feel like, oh, there's struggle here and there's struggle there, but it's just in the act of publishing, there's some hope. See, uh, it's, it's this is a complicated question because it's a question about, yeah, let's go back to the original and then come to this. In a way, I would say that a socialist writer helps provide people with confidence. I mean, the 
question of confidence, I think, is a very important issue. What does an unequal system like ours do? It batters the confidence, intellectual confidence, cultural confidence, and social confidence of people who come from peasant working class backgrounds. That their sense of that I deserve to have a voice even, a thought, let alone a voice. Thought is before voice. That, that I have a right to a thought of my own is somehow delegitimized because people will say, your thinking is brutal, peasant-like, whatever. So to produce confidence in pe that people's thoughts and their voices are important, I think is very important. It's key. Now, there are many ways to do this. I mean, you mentioned Darvish. It's not my terrain that is the world of the imaginative so much. Nonetheless, I mean, one of the key things in the career of somebody like Darvish is the cons constant insistence in giving the Palestinian nation confidence. You exist. You are alive. They are bombing us. They're denying. You are there. That confidence is... But so too the writer who goes and walks among garment workers. I'll give you an example. I have a very close friend, Tas Taslima Akhtar. She's a photographer and a documenter. Taslima took a photograph, which, by the way, I was the first to run. I'll just tell you that. Uh, yeah, she won a huge award for that. It was, it's a beautiful photograph in when the Rana Plaza uh, collapse, murder, God knows what to call it. These are contentious words. When the building collapsed and the workers died, she took a photograph of a man and a woman embracing each other in the rubble dead. It's really worth, her name is Taslima Akhtar. It's really worth looking at that picture. Now, what that picture suggested was not the tragedy. It had all that. It was not just tragedy. It had this feeling that these people were dying and they embraced. And, you know, they may not have known each other. We don't know. She later went and did a massive project where she took photographs of all the dead workers. And, you know, workers in places like Bangladesh don't take too many pictures of themselves. So these are passport-like pictures for their ID cards. So she made a book of passport photographs of each dead worker and stories of their lives. It's a beautiful book. Because what she was saying there is that these are not 300 and... This is Akhtar. This is Ramatul. This is... These are people. And then workers who... And it was produced at a very cheap price. Workers who took that, who bought that, who read it, looked at it, felt now an alignment of their... This is the production of confidence. So that your anger then is through the actual lives of people. You see yourself in the people. They're not a statistic. They're not a something. So I really feel like one of the acts of the socialist writer, it's not just to expose this, expose that. All those things are fine, but there can be an element of pretentiousness in the left-wing writer who wants to expose corruption. You know. Because you, you're like the Galahad, you know, the knight. You're going to, you know, the, put the hat on and gumshoe, you know, I break the story. No, your job is not to only do that. You have to write it in such a way, the corruption, not to demoralize people, but to give them a sense of hope and confidence in their own ability to act. So that in Egypt, you know, Mother Masar is doing a very good job. It's difficult to find the correct language to use to build confidence in that particular despair. But I think there the imperative is even greater than elsewhere. And there I think just telling the lives of ordinary people, there was a song produced right after Tahrir where the singer just sang, it was like the IMF song. He just sang about, it was shot in an apartment and it's like this is what our life is like, okay, the water doesn't come, there's no electricity, my kids hate their school, I can't even get my shirt ironed, he's sitting in his vest. That was an amazing music video, right? Because that, you look at it and go, I, that's me. And that's me is confidence. How do you feel like, and this is going to be my last question for now because I want to bring on um, so many of the people from the Worker Writers School. Um, how do you feel like the Worker Writers School, like how do you see that point of confidence and building confidence? How does that play into your thinking around sort of founding of the school and all the work you're doing with these workshops? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. It, to me, confidence is another word for solidarity. 
right? And so one of the things that I really see is this growing sense of, you know, this is my poem. And we did a, a reading last week at the Black Radicalism Conference at the Rosa Luxemburg uh, Stiftung. And uh, just to see people performing their work, uh, I had said to a number of people here, here today that the performances are just stronger and stronger. And you know, I think we'll see that now. Well, thank you so much. Um, I wanna now, um, we're gonna show a short clip from a documentary that's being made about the Worker Writers School. Um, and this is a clip by a filmmaker called Zardin Richardson, who's here. So if we can see the clip from your opening. Out, 
was you know the lawmakers don't want to hear his bill and compromising his bill to get it to him in, in Albany. But that made me so for being that man and understanding the the the, the, the abuse, whether it's wage theft, whether it's actual abuse that Nani Sophie faced, gave me that, that leverage to fight for the boys here, for the Nani Sophie car. We tell stories because they are our food. They are examples or paradigms for others. It was me struggling to work and going to the court. I tell those stories because I navigated when we fight to win. I got out of all our system and I share it with our monthly meetings most times to tell folks how I get over. It was my story. I wasn't telling the story of the person next door. I was telling Christine's story. So writing for me is a catharsis. It's a medium to heal. It's a medium to really tell your story. Sometimes you want to give them the middle finger. We already can give them the middle finger because your integrity wouldn't inform you to give them the middle finger. So you write about them. You write your truth. You speak truth to power. That's why I write. I write from what I feel. I write through just looking through the windows. I'm looking through the windows of these brownstones and these brownstones on the other side of the street. And it provokes my creative medium. Yeah? It informs me. It tells my story. And when I perform those stories, it liberates the minds of people. Because as a Caribbean writer, it frees me up to be able to tell my story in the Caribbean way. And I'll sound like another American writer. I don't want to sound like another, another American writer. But our stories are essential, right? For others and for ourselves to heal. If not, listen, if nobody else reads my volume of words, it's to me and it's to my healing. My healing catharsis.
PWU. Where is steel to be? Oppressed jamborees with top marks. We build a city slowly. Exactly 5.30 a.m., a woman in starch-tipped scrubs carries past rough sides of my uncle's head. <laughs> Subway served Monday to Sunday. A stench of stale canola oil lingers somewhere in the garage. A baby birth. The man, the man left of my side speaking many voices. I hear a poem. Quietly laughs Jamie Ferris. His daily bicycle, dangles, stopped walk, crept flowers, and all things colorful. The sound of Duke Ellington's You Must Be the Atrium seeps from every part of the time. This atrium is my oil gum, cuckoo, kalaloo, and cowfoot. Every, every, every half of it. It will help fill that barrel too. The curtain rod, the shampoo, a couple of briefs, a black barbie, no pen, flour rice, two toddler tricycles. I will think about the speakers later. An accent thick as more than heritage backup singer. From Penn Station to King's Point, past your rich soil. Women with Colombian accent sip Colombian coffee, extra black, brilliant. Tattoos of, of, of rosary bead reveals the Madonna and Son. She claps her hands as if praying. This town holds no room for us. Tiptoe around Madame's ass. SS, green card, ID, fingerprint, passport, DNA, wicked port, port vaccine. Tetanus shot, eight steps, even the common port vaccine. Just to dust 600 pound papers, Tiffany puffs and pans and pumps us baseball. You know that thing? You must be the A train. No. Mantra. Hard to 
happy when you don't have a job. Hard to be happy when you do have a job. What are the odds of that? Strange but true facts. Torn between the needs to make a decent living and caring for mother through the final chills of hers in every cold winter. Torn.
Richter was his name. What happened was a damn shame. Was the New York Sun. His flight could have been anyone. Dove had access to a gun. Became a cabbie. When drivers were last scrappy. 1978. This was a different place. Drivers survived the rat race. Nights were quite busy. As dizzy as Miss Lizzie. Dove could rock and roll. He shifted into high gear. Up and four year after year. You can't get away from your 16-hour days. Up the FDR, ride home in your filthy car. Dove can only drive so far. Hundred hours, work week without flowers. Barely above water, bills piled up high. Workers must start asking why. Sometimes he had girls in his backseat.
have about five, seven minutes of questions. There'll be a mic coming around and we can talk. So everybody, Christine, you're out So, questions? There's a mic, so we're recording. Hi, uh, my name's Jim Dawson, and I wondered with Mark and BJ if you guys see uh, in your role as, as a facilitator of other writers, if you feel that there might be, to get back to the question, what's the role of a first-person writer, you might have a different role, because uh, I'm not a journalist, but I've done a lot of work in uh, communication for behavior and social change, and that work is ultimately about uh, social mobilization and everything else. It's about uh, getting accurate information to local people so that they can train other people. So going to scale is about building a large network of local people who can talk face to face to one another. And it seems like, Mark, to me, that's almost more what you're doing. In terms of how you change, you see yourself as training journalists or activists in, in your writing. And then I guess that's a question for both of you. What is, is the role of you guys teaching to create new journalists or activists or social mobilizers? Yeah, I mean, I think for you know, me, it's, uh, you know, is that I want more? I want more poets, right? And I want a different kind of poet. Uh, you know, I remember when my very first book came out, and I thought it was this like you know book about the working class and you know where I grew up and all of these things. And I do readings, uh, and I go and do them, and it would be filled with a crowd of mostly poets I knew. Right? And to me, that felt like a complete failure of my first book because I, I, I wasn't speaking to a kind of an audience that I wanted that, that book to be part of. Right? And so to me, it's one thing then to, to write about those communities and another thing to create this space for, for people to write within. Right? And I think we saw today just a, a tremendous example of people from a wide range of different uh, professions and jobs and histories like bringing their stories to the stage? I mean, it, for me, the, the gap between like a journalist or three poets is almost zero in a way. Because like I was saying that we all express something. And in a way, we are all, per we are all permanent persuaders. I mean, you're trying to persuade somebody. What you're saying is, you don't understand. I work in retail. It's terrible not to have a job. It's terrible to have a job. What are the odds of that? <laughs> <laughs> That's permanent persuading. If you don't understand retail, now you do. That's it. That's, that's the epitaph on retail workers' lives, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, thinking about somebody who drives for 16 hours a day, this is permanent persuading. In, in a sense, art, journalism, we are all trying to persuade people to take something seriously. And people don't take these things seriously. I mean, they get in a cab and they think, you're going to drive me somewhere. Or they hire a nanny and say, you're going to take care of my kids. But each of these workers has an opinion. And they want to be taken seriously as thinkers and artists and writers and persuaders. So in that sense, I actually think at different scales, levels it's the same thing i mean you want to say listen to me i have something to tell you and don't we all feel that in one way at least take the mic it's like a hot potato you know? <laughs> <laughs> hello <laughs> any questions working 16 hour days seven days a week Great. Anything?
Well, I, I'll answer that. The first time uh, I did this uh, in 2013, it was at uh, Joe's Pub, and uh, I got drunk in the green room uh, where Elvis Costello was a couple of days before, and we first time I did it, I was a little nervous, but uh, you know, I was drunk, it was all good. But um, I started doing it with Mike Squire and the music, it's been great. I've, you know, I feel much more confident in, in, in expressing myself, and I'm, uh, you know, obviously since 2013, the, the taxi industry has changed a lot, so I feel a little bit more pressure in the sense that, um, you know, there's there's not a lot of taxi drivers that are doing, you know, tunes about, you know, the industry. So um, I hope that, you know, cab drivers hear this and are, you know, inspired and, and make them feel better about what I'm doing. So personally, I mean, I, the New York Times uh, reviewed us. And that's why I call us the Bards of Gridlock because the guy actually called us the Bards of Gridlock at that uh that 2013 show at Joe's Pub, but um, so anyway, um, you know it's it's been great for for me personally. But um, I hope that you know, I mean, these workers are great, and more workers are inspired to tell their stories because it, it is uh, important. You know, we're living in a time where you know the wanker is in the very White House. It's it's very uh, troubling. Uh, situation. So uh, workers, you know, most people are workers. There's a few bosses, but you know, 80, 90, whatever it is, percent are workers. So we have to, you know, speak our minds and that will only inspire. So I hope that we're getting better. I hope I'm getting better at, at doing that. So that's what, uh, and I, I thank Mark a lot because he's been great. He's an adorable man. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> really do. Yes? So let me just say that um, as someone who has been with the writers, the Worker Writers School for so many years, um, seven years, right? Um, you know, you ask about how the worker writers have evolved. Um, you know, in the words of Dr. Uh, Dr. Um, William Barber, he talks about, you know, this not being a moment, it's being a movement. So I would use the refrain very often at the writer's school that it's progressing, it's morphing into something. You know, we all come from our various entities, but the worker writer, we're storytellers, we're griots, we're sage, we're sedus, yes? We're speaking our truth to power. We're telling our stories, as Vijay just said, you know, having something to say, being heard, you know, knocking at, that, at those doors, the workers who you may not see, the invisible workers, the workers who are in the shadows, I mean, just to see the camaraderie, the love, um, and, and the written word. There's power in the written word. You know, it, it, it heals. You know, in the, in the words of Aurora Levins Morales, the Puerto Rican Jewish writer, she said that our, 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 our stories are our medicines. And that's what it does. It provokes, it heals, it touch. Yeah? Especially to, in this, as you know, Seth would say, in this political climate of four or five, you know how it's important to tell these stories, how essential communities are. We're bridging, you know, we're coming beyond the fence, right? The retail action with DW, domestic workers united to taxi drivers. Normally, you know, the taxi drivers would be driving, minding their business, or the, 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 the nanny who is in the shadows. You know, we have the immigration story tied up in there, you know? Who gets to tell those stories, yeah? So I, I, I see, not, not a moment, but a movement. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, I think, unfortunately, we're about out of time, but if you have individual questions for people, we'll be around for a few minutes. Tomorrow, 2 p.m., all the workers from the Worker Writer School and up in Albany at Burl's Poetry Shop in Dumbo. Give everybody a round of applause. Thank you. And let me, let, Thanks let, for let coming. Me, let, me, let me just say this before you go. And you ask, where do we see us going? Yeah, Mark Nowak, it's time that you chronicle or, or bring forth an anthology with the dynamic work of these writers. We've been doing it for years. And the work is really, as Mark said before, it's riveting, it's stronger. And people who might have been a little demure, demure, 
the Muir and the others aren't here are coming out of their shell. So, yeah. so it's, it's beautiful, yes? So the work is, you know, take me at my word. I'm a storyteller, take me at my word. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.